As we come to God's word, let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, please teach us this morning what it means to be a courageous Christian as by your spirit you teach us about the life of the Apostle Paul. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's a fine line between courage and craziness. Uh, Some people might say that jumping out of a plane into enemy territory is courageous. Uh, Others might say that it's crazy. I wonder if the difference between the two is in fact your motive. That jumping into crocodile infested waters is stupid. Unless you're going there to save a baby that's drowning. And then it's heroic. And when I think of the term courageous, I often remember that famous quote from the British drama Yes Minister. Um, When the politician would decide on a policy that the chief of staff didn't really like, what would the chief of staff say? Very courageous, Mr Sir Humphrey, very courageous, which is another way of saying very stupid, but the politician didn't seem to pick it up. Throughout the history of the church, there have been many courageous things. Are they stupid or are they heroic? Well, we've seen so many things that have been heroic because many people have been courageous for Christ. They've acted with no regard to their safety, just so that people could hear about Jesus. Modern examples include people who are beheaded, burned at the stake, infested with leprosy, tortured in jail, or as the writer to the Hebrews described of the Old Testament heroes, some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips, Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. If you didn't share their convictions, you'd say they were crazy. But we know that they're courageous. Today we're going to see another time when the Apostle Paul is courageous. He's been told by the Holy Spirit to go down to Jerusalem, even though it will bring him pain and suffering. But he obeys the Holy Spirit and he acts courageously. And the reason is that Paul needed to personally bring the financial support that had been raised. A whole lot of churches in the north had raised money for the Judean Christians who were going through a really hard time, and he wanted to personally bring it to them. And he did this not only as a gesture of goodwill, but as an important way of bringing together two important separate groups within the church. Last week, we saw Paul arrive in Jerusalem finally at the end of that journey, but nothing really happened yet. Today, we pick up the action. Acts 21 verse 18, The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. There's Paul and there's James. They are the ones who head up, in effect, two separate groups within the church. There were two separate groups. See, on the one hand, you've got Paul, who is the one who represents people who were originally pagans or Gentiles who have become Christians. So they're Gentile Christians. And then on the other hand, you've got James, who represents people who were born Jewish and then became Christians. So the Jewish Christians. So Paul looks after the Gentile Christians, and James looks after the Jewish Christians. And they're both together in Jerusalem right now. 
And it's very important at this point in the history of Christianity that those two factions get on okay. Because otherwise there could be a horrible, messy split. And this is one of the reasons that Paul knew that he had to get to Jerusalem. Because amongst other things, he was bringing a really lovely gesture of goodwill from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians. And as that happened, he was able to tell them about how the gospel was growing. Verse 19, after greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things that God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. Gentiles, one after the other, are becoming followers of Jesus. And the response was really positive. Verse 20, after hearing this, they praised God, these Jewish Christians. And then they said, you know, dear brother Paul, how many thousands of Jews have also believed. And they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. So that's great news. Lots of Gentiles becoming Christians, lots of Jews becoming Christians. But did you notice the kind of, not so much a sting in the tail, but the little word there at the very end of this quote. Oh, and they follow the law of Moses very seriously. Take note, Paul. But that leads to a bit of a problem because they go on to say, James and the other Jews who have become Christians, verse 21, but the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you're teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the laws of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? Because they will certainly hear that you have come. And they won't be happy. It doesn't say that there, but I think that's what we're supposed to understand. What was the rumour? Well, the rumour is that Paul is removing Jewish customs. The rumour is that if you grew up as a Jew and become a Christian, act like you were never a Jew. And we'll just throw out all the heritage and just be one as the one body. And we'll look exactly the same in every single way. That is the rumour, which is actually not true, which we'll come to in a moment. But this rumour is stressing out the Jewish Christians who are back at home in Jerusalem. It's not the first time they've had to deal with this thing, remember? Paul has already gone down many years before that, and they had a big chinwang, the big so-called Council of Jerusalem, where the big one agenda item was is, how are we going to work together? What do we do with the Jews who become Christians and the Gentiles who become Christians? What are we going to do with all of the customs and stuff like that? And they worked it out and there was a big cheer as they made a decision together in the power of the Holy Spirit. They wrote a letter and everyone's happy, but it sounds like there's been some distortion along the way. But that meeting made it clear that you are not saved by keeping the Jewish works. Just because you do the Jewish stuff doesn't mean that you are guaranteed of going to heaven. It's not by doing those things. It's by believing in Jesus alone, not by the works of the law. And if you don't believe that, read what Paul wrote in all his letters. It was his big thing that he banged on about over and over again. Not by works so that no one can boast, save by grace alone. But they need to be able to create the perception of the reality, and that is that Paul didn't chuck out all the old Jewish stuff. Not for the Jews. He still saw some value in it, and a value because it kept unity where there could easily be disunity. And so James has a plan. And he tells Paul, verse 23, 
Here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved. And then everyone will know that the rumours are all false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. I don't know how I'd respond to that if I was Paul. It's like, don't you just believe me? Why do I have to prove it by going through this costly exercise of, of paying for these people to have their special haircuts and all that stuff? Just believe me. But what does Paul do? Well, we see, in fact, that he does that. He follows those Jewish rituals and he makes a costly payment to support those other Jewish converts in the same activity. Why? Because for the sake of unity, Paul did Jewish religious acts. Not so he'd be saved, but because he saw unity as being so important. At last year, when I went over to Jerusalem with Mandy, we were there for a big conference of 2,000 Anglican leaders from around the world. I've told you about it before. Uh, and I've told you also that there is a real diversity in the way that these different Anglicans do church. Um, you can see it in what they wear. You can see it in the pictures of, in fact, what they do when they come together for church. And in fact, the very last day of church, when we had the big conference, it was extremely ornate. Funny hats and robes and big candles and all sorts of stuff. Uh, the kind of stuff that, that we in Sydney Diocese are, are not totally comfortable with, are, are quite, quite ceremonial. Um, but nonetheless, when we went there, we said we are going to celebrate our unity and we're going to go along with the general sort of vibe of the traditions. And there was great unity so that we didn't talk about, well, why are you wearing a dog collar and not you and all that sort of stuff. There was a unity there. And I think that was Paul, that's what Paul is saying and doing here. He's like, I don't want to get concerned about whether you're getting involved in special haircutting rituals or not. I want to be on about Jesus. And so he willingly does just that. But anyway, after a few days, suddenly turned very bad. Are we surprised? No, the Holy Spirit said it would happen, and here it goes. The seven days were almost ended of the purification stuff when some Jews from the province of Asia... That's Ephesus, way, way away. They saw Paul in the temple and they roused a mob against him. And they grabbed him, yelling, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who preaches against our people everywhere. And he tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple and even defiles this holy place by bringing in Gentiles. For earlier that day, they'd seen him in the city with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and they assumed that Paul had taken him into the temple. What happens here is kind of the beginning of all of the trouble that is going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. Because right here he's grabbed and he's falsely accused. These Jews take matters into their own hands. And it got really, really bad, really, really quickly. Verse 30, the whole city of Jerusalem was rocked by these accusations and a great riot followed. Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple and immediately the gates were closed behind him. Absolute mayhem. What's going to happen to protect Paul from this riot? Who's going to come to his aid? Well, interestingly, it's the Romans. Because as they were trying to kill, verse 33, as, verse 31, as they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. 
And he immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd with lights and sirens, so to speak. And when the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. Not a bad idea. And then the commander arrested Paul and ordered him bound with two chains. The commander asked the crowd who he was and what he'd done. Some shouted one thing and some the other. And since the commander couldn't find out the truth in all the uproar and confusion, he ordered that Paul be taken to the fortress. And as Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent that the soldiers had to lift him to their shoulders to protect Paul. And the crowd followed behind him, shouting, Kill him. Kill him. All hell is breaking loose. The Jews didn't really know why they hated Paul, but they did. They couldn't get their story straight. But it's the Roman commander and his soldiers that now come to his aid. Paul doesn't just happily and quietly go and lick his wounds inside the fortress, though. He is courageous. And so he wants to have a chance to talk to this rabble crowd right there. And so we read that his request to do so is granted. Skipping to verse 40. The commander agreed. So Paul stood up on the stairs and motioned to the people to be quiet. Soon a deep silence enveloped the crowd and he addressed them in their own language, in Aramaic. It's kind of like how Jesus calmed the storm. Paul calmed the crowd. And he calmed the crowd with his words. Not just what he was about to say, but the language that he used. Aramaic was the language that the Jews spoke, which must have been an important signal to them that he had a message that they needed to hear. What's he going to say to them? Sticks and stones may break my... No, what does he say? Verse 3. Paul said, I am a Jew like you. Born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, you know, the top private school for Jews. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honour God in everything I did, just like all of you today, as you try and beat me up. He makes it clear that he's a true blue Jew. And to show what a true blue Jew he was, he did what they did. And he says in verse 4, And I persecuted the followers of the way, the Christians, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. But as he did that, something changed. And we know the story. I'll say just a few verses from it. Paul goes into the full detail. But verse 6 and 7, he says, I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon and a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Everything changed when Jesus appeared to Saul. Then in the verses that follow, he explains his Damascus road experience that we have already heard about. And then verse 14, then he told me, the, the God of our ancestors, and he's talking about here about a guy called Ananias, a devout Jew. This guy said, 
The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone, everywhere, what you have seen and heard. See, he's got a special job. What's his job from Jesus? That is to tell everyone about Jesus. I remember reading that when the late great evangelist John Chapman was asked what he did for a living, he didn't say, oh, I'm an Anglican minister. He would try and say, the Anglican church pays me to talk to people about Jesus. And I kind of like that. It's not so much what his title is, but what he does, because it then leads nicely to the next thing you do. So what do you think about Jesus? It's kind of like, well, I'm paid to talk about him, so let's do it. Paul's job was he was told by Jesus to talk about Jesus. And so he did. But after Jesus told, a few things happened. We skip to verse 21. Jesus tells him when he's in Jerusalem to go away from there. And in particular, he says, The Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, to the pagans. And how do you reckon that the the rabble crowd right there on the steps of the fortress reacted to that? It's like, fair enough. Okay, we see what you're doing. Off you go. Have a nice day. Verse 22. The crowd listened until Paul said that word, Gentiles. Then they all began to shout, Away with such a fellow, he isn't fit to live. They yelled, threw off their coats, and tossed handfuls of dust into the air. Crucify him. Crucify him. Same place, same deal as Jesus. They weren't saying to crucify Jesus, uh, crucify Paul, but it's the same thing, isn't it? The mob is there wanting to kill this guy for standing up for what he believes. And his only crime, the Apostle Paul, is that he's an ambassador of Christ. He's just telling it like it is. Even though he's gone out of his way to maintain Jewish culture, he himself would have had shaven hair because he'd undergone the same ritual of purification, all of that stuff. They don't care. And in fact, it may well rub them even further up the wrong way because he looks like a Jew, he grew up like a Jew, and yet he's talking about Jesus. See, when we represent Jesus, we associate with Jesus, and people don't like Jesus' teachings. So when you say you are a Christian, you say that you are associated with Christ and that you believe his word. It's controversial. People won't like it. But what are you going to do? Change the message? That's a bad idea for an ambassador. never turns out well. If you're with Christ, you're with Christ. And see how it turned out for Paul. Well, after that, the Roman commander really wanted to hear why there was all this hubbub. And so he tries to get Paul to tell him. And he's got a bit of a tool that usually helps people sort of loosen up. The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. Roman style. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. He could have sort of boiled the kettle and said, tell us a little bit about what's happening. But no, the, the flogging was his modus operandi and the way he went. 
This flogging was not just a little bit of a caning, like maybe back to our school days. These floggings were enough to kill a person, and they frequently did. Lashings of, of, of leather with rocks and glass and bone and horrible things that would often kill a person. No wonder it would loosen them up a little bit. But Paul knew that that might be the end of him and he's got more in him. So verse 25, when they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? And when the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. Paul uses his get-out-of-jail-free card, or so to speak. He's a Roman citizen and not supposed to be whipped without a trial. And so, verse 29, the soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen. And the commander was frightened because he had warded him bound and whipped. Fair point. It's a little bit like, it's a lot like when he was thrown in the Philippian jail, remember? Without a trial. And then the next day, cap in hand, tail between their legs, the Romans come back and say, oops, sorry, mate. <laughs> Same thing happened. Paul played the same card. He declares his Roman citizenship and avoids lashings. Smart move. Because not only does it help him out of that physical pain, uh, torture, it actually gives him some remarkable opportunities to talk about Jesus, which is what his main game is. Verse 30, we read that the next day the commander ordered the leading priest into session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about. So he released Paul to have him stand before them. He wants Paul to tell them all what the deal is. And so he gets the Romans, the Romans get there with the Jews and see what happens. And it begins with this. Gazing intently at the high council, verse 1, Paul began, Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. I am innocent. I've done nothing wrong. I am the ultimate Jew in this sense. I'm following Jesus the Jew, Jesus the Messiah. I stand here with a clear conscience. And here's the response of the most senior living Jewish leader. Verse 2. Instantly Ananias the high priest commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. He couldn't cope with that. And so the high priest reacts violently to Paul. How does Paul react? Does he stand there silent before his accusers like Jesus? Verse 3, but Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? I think that's a no. Uh, Paul's got some fire in his belly, and rightly so. There's no justice happening here. But interestingly, those standing near him, verse 4, say to him, Paul, do you dare to insult God's high priest? Aren't you disobeying the law? You who claim to be so Jewish and so proper. I'm sorry, brothers, verse 5. I didn't realise he was the high priest, Paul replied. For the scriptures say you must not speak evil of your rulers. Uh, Now, why is that? How is it possible? 
Well, it seems most likely from the commentator I was reading from John Stott that he thinks it's due to Paul's bad eyesight. And it actually refers to his bad eyesight in different parts of the Bible, in Galatians chapter 4. Because our translation says that you are a corrupt hypocrite. Literally, it says you are a whitewashed tomb. If you look at some other translations, which was usually a coin of phrase throughout the scriptures to mean you're a hypocrite. But it's also possible that he's got such bad sight that all he can see is this white person in a white robe. He says, you're a white robe. You're a white tomb. And so on that basis, he actually can't recognize the facial features of the high priest. That, might, that seems legit, I'd say. But whatever it is, he's apologetic because he has gone against the law in that sense, interestingly. But what's he going to do next? Well, he comes, he hatches a little plan that he thinks is actually going to work. He's, in a sense, he's, he's going to try and divide and conquer. He's going to win some friends and make some enemies even hate him more. So verse 6, Paul realised that some of the members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees, two different sects within Judaism. And so Paul says, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, as were my ancestors. I'm on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. This divided the council, the Pharisees, against the Sadducees, for the Sadducees say there's no resurrection or angels or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these. Uh, it's a cunning plan that paid off. He, Paul, identifies with the Pharisees. It's the same group of people that were spoken about regularly in the Gospels as being against Jesus, interestingly. But they are spiritualistic Jews uh, compared to the Pharisees. To the Sadducees, rather. The Pharisees were spiritualistic. They believed in things like angels and the afterlife and the power of prayer and all that stuff. The Sadducees believed in none of that. They didn't believe in anything spiritual at all. They're the kind of people that say that when you die, you die, your bones go in the ground, and that's it. Interesting that there would be religious people who would believe such things. But you know there are Christians around who believe the same sort of thing. They gather for church because they want to remember some of the sayings of Jesus. They think of Jesus as this historical figure from 2,000 years ago who said some really profound things about love and about peace. And he did some wonderful acts of kindness amongst the people. And then he died and he was buried and his bones are still there if you look hard enough for them because there's no life after death. And when he talks about prayer, I mean, he was a little bit of a kind of a spooky spiritualist, but really it was just a whole lot of make-believe. Imagine being so involved in a church and not believing that actually there is anything spiritual in the world. There are Christians around just like that. And Christianity for them is just one big building full of do-gooders, which has no real impact beyond this life that we see. They are the Sadducees of the modern world. But the Pharisees believe in a life after death, in judgment, in the resurrection, in angels, in spirits. 
And Paul cleverly divides them right between the two. Because when he talks about supernatural things like blinded by the light and Jesus speaking from the dead and you know from heaven after he's died and risen, it's not going to resonate well with the Sadducees, but the Pharisees are going to love it. And so we, we read that there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully, we see nothing wrong with Paul, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him, because we believe in those sorts of things, unlike you, Sadducees. And as the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. Paul just leaves this trail of conflict behind him because he's an ambassador of Christ. And in the face of that conflict, Paul shows courage. Boy, you would think that his tank of courage would be almost having the fuel light on because how do you keep standing up and getting flogged and beaten up? It's like, Paul, don't you get it? Just stop saying things and it'll go all right. It's like, not a chance. But as he slept that night, you would think that he would be very low in the courage tanks. And so he needed some encouragement. And the encouragement comes from the greatest encourager of all. Verse 11, that night the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem... You must preach the good news in Rome as well. It's not, you're not going to get a greater word of encouragement than Jesus coming and visiting you at night and saying, chin up, mate. It's going to be okay. And by the way, you'll get out of Jerusalem safely. I'm going to get you to Rome and you get a chance to talk to me, talk about me over there as well. This is interesting because we are now given as readers a piece of information that is going to change the way we read the next few verses. Because the author, the historian, Luke, has said right at this point, we know for sure that Paul's going to get to Rome safely. So you put that thought aside in your head and then you see what happens next. And I've got to say, I actually think it makes it a bit comic, almost a little bit black comedy perhaps, Let's see if you agree. Verse 12. After Jesus himself has encouraged Paul, we then see this remarkable turn of events that I think is quite funny. Because verse 12, the next morning a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them in the conspiracy. Now why is that funny? It's because we know that they're going to fail. And they have said, we promise, cross our heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, we will never eat or drink again until we kill Paul. And we're just told by Jesus, you won't. So these guys are going to get very hungry. And you've got to almost laugh at the way in which they have this conspiracy against the Lord's man, and yet it is going to fail so utterly, spectacularly. But they are so determined... They are, these hunger-striking Jews are determined to kill Paul. And they are so determined to kill Paul that they have a conspiracy. They conspire with the leading priests and elders to assassinate Paul. But something intervenes. 
We read in verse 16 that Paul's nephew, his sister's son, heard their plan and he went to the fortress and told Paul. And Paul called for one of the Roman officers and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. What's going to happen? Well, verse 23, the assassinating plot happens, is told to him, and the commander responds by saying, he called two of his officers and ordered, get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight and take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops. Provide horses for Paul to ride and get him safely to Governor Felix. I also think this is pretty funny as well. Because there's a little bit of a funny thing between the Romans and the Jews. They don't get on terribly well. And if the Roman guy wants to really send a strong... I was going to say something probably I shouldn't have. Really send a strong message of disdain to the Jews. It's like, well, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure that he does get safely out of Jerusalem over to Rome. And so... 200 people and another 200 people and 70... Nothing is going to stop him getting there. It's kind of like all the lights and sirens are on. It's protective custody. It's kind of like what happens when the president comes. It's bulletproof glass. It's everything to get him safely out of Jerusalem and to make sure those 40 people get very, very hungry and thirsty. Well, the commander in Jerusalem sends Paul with all his bodyguards, writes a letter to the governor, Felix, and then when he gets them finally to Caesarea, verse 33, we read that when they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul and the letter to governor Felix. He read it and then asked Paul what province he was from. Cilicia, Paul answered, and he says, I will hear your case myself when accusers arrive, the governor told him. And then the governor ordered him kept in the prison at Herod's, Herod's headquarters in tight maximum security. Paul is now protected from the enemies in Jerusalem. And Paul's going to get a chance to talk about Jesus more and more and more. He's there in Caesarea, which is kind of like a little mini version of Rome there in Palestine. It's got chariot races. It's got a big amphitheater that looks like a coliseum. Quite an amazing little area, a port right there that would link up Rome with, with, with Judea. And Paul is there in Roman custody, protected from those Jewish enemies. It must have been terrifying for Paul to stand up for Jesus in that way. Terrifying. And it required great courage. And he showed that courage. Courage under fire. And I've got to say, I think it's an incredible inspiration to us today to keep talking about Jesus. In our public sphere, it is increasingly difficult to talk about Jesus. I was reading the paper this morning. There are two articles about two different famous Christian sportsmen and women who are under attack for naming the name of Jesus and talking about Jesus. This is modern-day Australia. You want to be a Christian, you need to be courageous. Paul is a model to us. He is heroic, though others may call him stupid. He's courageous, though others may call him crazy. But the bottom line is that when we've been called by Christ, 
we know we can't keep this news to ourselves. Let's pray. Loving Father, we ask that you would strengthen us as we own the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit we might be emboldened to preach Christ in this world that increasingly rejects him. And we ask that you would give us courage even if it leads to physical harm. And we do pray for those throughout the world who endure these very sufferings to this day that above all you would help them to be courageous. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.